Welcome, everybody. It's an honor to be here. Um, here are um, Julie Donstrom and Jennifer Arlington. Um, so Julie is a clinical associate professor and directors of the Immigrants' Rights and Human Trafficking Program at the Boston University of School of Law. She teaches the areas of immigration, human trafficking, public interest, and gender-based violence. She has shared the UT visa work group uh, working group of the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute Immigration Coalition, and she has served on various task force and commissions related to the immigrants, survivors of a crime. Thank you, Julie, for being here. And um, Jennifer Arlington supervises the immigration unit at the Met at Metro West Legal Services located in Framingham. Metro West provides free legal aid to low-income residents in the Middlesex and Norfolk counties. Attorney Arlington has practiced immigration law for more than 15 years. Throughout her career, she has focused on the practice of representing immigrant survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault in their, in their applications from humanitarian immigration relief before the Boston Immigration Court and USCIS. Previously, she also practiced family law at Metro West, where she represented immigrant survivors in their contested family law and restraining order, order matters um, before the Massachusetts Probate and Family and District Courts. Welcome again, and we're going to start with the presentation. I'm gonna mute myself and get off camera, leaving you to um, get, guide this. Great, so I'll go ahead and, and kick it off. First, I just wanna say th a big thank you to Karen Bobadilla for inviting us and also to, to the Boston Bar Association for hosting this training. It's incredibly important to have you all here, you're on the front lines um, seeing these cases, and we're just really excited to share with you more about the U visa program and, and provide you with a background in terms of nuts and bolts. How do you put together an application? And what are some of the more advanced issues in terms of thinking about U visa application? So, so first, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the goals of our presentation. We have about two hours with you all uh, today, so we're really excited to have that and encourage you to in include questions in the Q&A function um, throughout the presentation. And if we don't respond to them during the presentation, we'll also be leaving some time at the end for that as well. So what do we hope to do today? Uh, first, we're going to talk a little bit about the history and purpose of the U visa to give you a sense of why this is an important tool for immigrant survivors of crime and also for government agencies in terms of encouraging individuals to step forward. We're also going to be talking about the U visa requirements and common issues that might arise in practice. Um, that includes certification requests. So many of the, for the U visa, there's a requirement that they're, uh, that a government official completes a U visa certification request. And there's also relevant state law that, that governs um, when and how they should issue those responses. So we're going to be covering all of that today. We're also going to be speaking about grounds of inadmissibility that may come up in in U visa applications, how to identify them, how to address them in terms of submitting a specific waiver application in support of, of the, of the uh, U visa petitioner. Also, who qualifies as family members and how do you submit applications for family members? We will also briefly address uh, adjustment of status or, or applications for green cards for U visa holders and also derivative family members and discuss uh, strategies for U visa petitioners in removal proceedings before the Executive Office for Immigration Review. Um, we hope, this is only a two hour um, uh, training, but we hope to touch on both basics and you know some, some more advanced issues, but, but more so provide you with resources so that you are in the best position to know how to research these issues as they come up in practice and what to do to address them. 
And then finally, we'll be engaging in a question and answer session towards the end of the uh, training today. So please do submit your questions. Um, or hold them for that session, and we're going to have more time. We do ask, um, you know, that especially the questions during the presentation today before Q&A, that they're limited to sort of clarification questions rather than complex hypos so that we can really get through the material and then answer, um, answer other questions towards the end. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jen. Thank you, Julie. Good morning, everyone. Again, I, I just echo um, Julie's comments and thank Karen for, for helping to organize this in the Boston Bar Association for hosting. Um, I'm Jen Allington. So before we get into all of that, um, I did want to just spend a few minutes um, orientating you to the client um, in the U visa process. Um, in order to be eligible for a U visa, um, uh, an immigrant must have suffered substantial harm, either physical um, or emotional abuse, um, in order to be qualified. And so it is important to be mindful of um, the fact that your client may be suffering from, from trauma in the form of PTSD or, or depression or other manifestations. Um, and so we just wanted for, to present some sort of guidance on things to be mindful about when working with um, immigrant survivors. Um, it may be is disclosing their history of abuse or or the fact that they've been um, a, a victim of a crime, you may be the first person that they are providing details to um, outside of their own family, or, or even you may just be the first person that they're telling. And so you do want to take time to work on establishing trust with your client, um, making sure that they understand the legal process um, and their role within that legal process and the ways in which um, they have power within that legal process with respect to decision-making around sort of every step of both the immigration process and the, um, the criminal investigation or, or prosecution. Depending on your client's background, they may come from a place where um, they've developed a fear of authority figures, law enforcement officers. And so just interacting with, with local police may be um, challenging for them. Um, and also just to be mindful that trauma can manifest itself differently in different people. And so, you know, it, it's important that you sort of constantly be checking on both your yourself and whatever your biases may be, and also your client um, to make sure that, um, you know, that they're feeling comfortable and are getting the support that they need uh, throughout the process. Um, that said, um, you know, it's important to establish those boundaries and know for yourself when it, you know, it's not important for you to be providing certain types of support, but for you to be making sure that the client is getting other services, therapeutic services if needed um, outside of your role. Um, and so, you know, es establishing appropriate professional boundaries throughout that um, relationship so that um, everyone is getting the support that they need. Um, so for some practical tips, um, When, um, so for, for, 
for meeting with your client, I think it's important to be mindful about the amount of time you set up for a meeting. I, I'm not a fan of, of sort of three-hour meetings that are an odyssey where you're kind of doing the affidavit and, and the forms and everything all at once that may be overwhelming for a client. And so if you have time, um, I would encourage you to um, think about how you use your time. Um, and especially if you're working with an interpreter, that is always going to take longer. Um, and just be mindful about the amount of um, you know, emotional energy you're demanding of a client throughout this process. Uh, I think it's important to make sure your client understands the purpose of a meeting um, before the, you know, at the time that you set up the meeting. Um, many clients will be anxious about having to retell their story again. And so if you can prepare them that the next meeting will not be about telling your story, it will be a meeting two meetings from now, I think that could be helpful um, in, in helping clients feel more relaxed. And I would also encourage you, again, if you have time, to not make that first uh, meeting, a, an in-depth client interview meeting where you go through their trauma history, but perhaps a meeting where you go through their immigration history, complete some forms so that your client can become more comfortable with you. Um, and then I also think it's important to minimize the amount of times you have client tell their story. And so if you have documents such as medical reports, police reports, um, criminal dockets that sort of piece together what the story is and read those to clients and confirm that they are accurate, that can be a way of, of minimizing the amount of times clients need to tell certain aspects of their story. Um, during the meeting with the client, um, you know, take breaks, keep an eye on the client, keep an eye on their their energy, their behavior during the meeting, um, make sure that they understand, again, the purpose of the meeting, why you're asking these questions, what the legal standard is, you know, the legal standard is that you need to establish substantial harm. And so that, the, that there is purpose to those questions. Um, and then at the end of the meeting, sort of, again, check in, what is their plan for the rest of the day? Do they, if they have a therapist, are they, do they have a next appointment with that person? Um, I always try to schedule a next meeting if needed so that when they leave the meeting with you, they they have something to look forward or forward to and, and know what the, the purpose of that next meeting is. And again, preparing them if you plan to make the next meeting about talking about their past trauma, that they're prepared for that and have um, whatever sort of therapeutic supports they need in place in anticipation of that meeting. And then finally, um, you know, being, being mindful of your own self-care and, and making sure you know those resources for uh, secondary trauma. Ayla, I know, has some resources and, and there are other resources available locally. Other challenges to consider, um, as always, and I think this is true of, of um, you know, all aspects of immigration law, if you don't speak the language that your client speaks, there's going to be interpretation issues. And so being mindful about who the interpreter is, um, you know, what the client's preference is, obviously, whenever possible, you should avoid using family members and especially children as interpreters. Um, but, you know, try to think ahead to interpretation at the courthouse. Obviously, there's a, an interpreter for the hearings, but who, who? how are you going to communicate with your client in the hallway? Um, and then also when accessing law enforcement. So 
you know, the initial reporting of a crime may be challenging due to language access issues. We we know that sometimes um, immigrants have to go back multiple times to make a report um, because there may not be somebody available who speaks their language. Um, but, you know, this is an opportunity, again, to advocate for language access, you know, telephone lines and um, other ways to sort of help your client um report crimes and then continue their cooperation in a way that's um, appropriate. And then finally, you know, being mindful of cultural challenges, again, your own implicit biases. Um, and then the the that the fact that your client, um, even though they are the victim, they may have their own feelings of guilt around the crime um, and, and how it came about. Um, they may be part of a, a close-knit or just a larger immigrant community, and they may have concerns about how they will be perceived within their community for cooperating with law enforcement. And, and they may also have, you know, very reasonable fears about the fact that they're cooperating with law enforcement. Um, their abuser may still live within the community, um, and um, that may be a risk to them. And so again, it's important to check in with your client, make sure they're maintaining contact with their providers, make sure they're attending their court dates, checking in with the police or the district attorney is required. Um, and, and, you know, as always, making sure your client is actually reading their emails from you or checking their voicemails and, and staying engaged with the process when they might not otherwise want to. Okay, so we're now just going to dive into the U visa history and purpose. Um, you're all here to learn more about the U visa. Just a note on terminology first, we're, we're using the term U visa, but generally um, the benefit if the individual is in the United States is known as U non-immigrant status. It is a, a form of non-immigrant status. And in fact, if individuals are, are approved for this benefit, they will not receive a physical visa. They generally receive um, proof of that status in the form of an I-94, new I-94 arrival departure record, and also a work card. Um, but we're going to be using the term U visa as a, as a shorthand. Um, it is true that those individuals who are outside of the U.S. who might meet the requirements um, would receive a U visa if they are, are um, allowed to enter. Um, and so, so the U visa does, does also exist. So what is what is U non-immigrant status or the U visa? It's a form of a non-immigrant visa status that allows survivors of certain qualifying crimes um, to receive immigration status. And we're going to go through those requirements in just a moment. Some of the requirements include having been helpful in an investigation or prosecution, among other requirements. It was created in the in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000. So the T visa is over 20 years old, which is really exciting, but in some ways a newer form of immigration relief when we're thinking about asylum or, or even the um, the Violence Against Women Act of 94. How many are available? So there are 10,000 U visas available annually for prime uh, principal applicants. That's the individual survivors. Um, that's that's the good news. Um, the bad news is that um, because there are only 10,000 available, there is a cap. And um, and as of March 2022, almost 300,000 cases are pending. So that, that was, as of that date, 291,169 cases are pending. Um, so the tremendously bad news associated with this benefit is that um, that means that if you applied today for a U visa, 
for a principal applicant, um, it might be 29 or more years before that individual becomes eligible. We're going to be talking a little bit about a process to um, apply and receive work, work authorization um, before that 29 or 30 year period. Um, but it does mean that, that um, this is not a fast avenue for immigration relief. Um, and we'll also be talking about other potential avenues like the T visa that you might want to explore in order to open up um, an avenue more quickly. What is important about the U visa history and purpose is that it had and had and has broad bipartisan support. A part of that reason is that it was created in order to address sort of a twofold issue, one to strengthen law enforcement or the government's ability to both detect, investigate and prosecute crimes. And then second, to provide protections to immigrant survivors, recognizing that they may not step forward um, to report or cooperate with, uh, with, with, with a criminal investigation or another type of governmental investigation without the ability to apply for status. At the time in 2000, um, the, the only sort of similar relief existed in the Violence Against um, Women Act and only applied to domestic violence survivors who had a qualifying relationship, like, uh, for example, were married to U.S. citizens or green card holders. So really in 2000, this significantly expanded those who might qualify while also setting other requirements, which we'll talk talk a little bit about. Um, but it is important to keep in mind that dual full, twofold um, purpose of the U visa program, especially when speaking with certifiers, with government agencies, to remind them why it's both in their interest and beneficial to immigrant survivors that they issue these special certifications. Excellent. And we just want to provide you with the sources of law. You know, I think um, both Jen and I can attest that if you have questions about the requirements, what they are, how they've been interpreted, the, where is the best place to look? I know all of you on this call know this, you know, the statute, the statute, the statute, then the regulations. Also, the policy manual mentioned here is, a, is an important resource that provides background in terms of how USCIS um, that adjudicates these applications, how they um, interpret those provisions and apply them as well, um, as well as policy memoranda and other, um, other guidance here. I'll just also just briefly note, um, if you're curious what you need to include with the application, you might consider um, consulting the instructions for the forms, um, which really lay out both what the required documents are and, um, and what and you might also see on that website, like what form versions you're going to need to complete because those forms do change um, quite frequently. But this is the big lead up. Um, what is required in order to apply for the U visa? So I'm going to go quickly um, through the different requirements, and then we're going to dive into each of them to give you more background and information. So these are the primary requirements for the U visa. You'll see that they mirror what we were just talking about in terms of the um, twofold goal, both supporting law enforcement or government interests and also the survivors. So they have to have suffered a substantial substantial mental or physical abuse as a relate as a result of being a victim of qualifying criminal activity. Um, so that's the first requirement. Just a couple of quick notes. Um, substantial physical or mental abuse includes emotional abuse. So there might be a physical injury related to the crime. 
Um, alternatively or additionally, you may, sh may be showing, as Jen mentioned about the trauma, the impact of the trauma on the individual, whether that's in the context of a diagnosis or symptoms that they are um, suffering related to the criminal activity. Um, USCIS also um, lists out and the statute lists out um, what, what is qualifying criminal activity. We'll go through that in just a moment. So not all crimes will qualify you for a U visa, only specific crimes um, if, the, if the elements are met under state or federal law. And then that individual has to have information about the qualifying criminal activity. Um, usually that's a requirement that can be easily met, but there might be certain limited cases where um, an indiv individual say unconscious when the crime happened, um, doesn't recall details, and you have to think through, do they possess information and how do you, how do you prove or establish that? Um, third, the law enforcement agency has to certify their helpfulness in the detection, investigation, or prosecution of the criminal activity. And you see, um, here's the the U the U status form at the bottom. But there's a sp special certification form that's um, called the U uh, form I nine eighteen supplement B um, that the government agency, which we'll talk through in just a moment, has to complete and certify two things: one that they were a victim of that qualifying activity, and two that they were helpful in the detection, investigation, or prosecution. Again, note that says or, not and, but um, that they assisted in that detection. If they don't have a certification, they are not qualified for the U visa. Um, they might qualify for some other form of immigration relief, but the certification is required, not recommended. So it's an important part of the application. Fourth, the qualifying crime has to have occurred in the U.S. or territories or otherwise violated U.S. law. So this is tremendously important. Um, it may be pretty straightforward if you have, you know, an immigrant survivor, let's say they were victimized in Suffolk County, the conduct and say the crime was domestic violence. It clearly occurred in the U.S. and also violated U.S. law. A more tricky example would be um, you have a survivor of, of um, sexual assault who, where the sexual assault occurs in Mexico, right? Um, if it did, it does not did not occur in the U.S. And we would have to ask, does it otherwise violate U.S. law, right? Sexual assault is generally a state crime. There may be federal crimes, um, but is there extraterritorial jurisdiction? Um, in some cases, like trafficking offenses, you might have that extraterritorial jurisdiction, um, which means that the um, you have jurisdiction, federal uh, or state law enforcement has jurisdiction outside of the um, territory, but um, but otherwise you would not qualify. So you have to have to really think through um, what what is a violation of U.S. law, or um, did it occur in the U.S. They they also have to have been helpful in the detection, investigation, or prosecution, which we talked a little bit about before in terms of the certification. And then they're in, they're admiss they have to either be admissible um, or qualify for a waiver of inadmissibility. And we'll talk through that in just a moment. But but generally that um, that waiver application looks at whether it's in the public interest for that individual to re remain in the United States. So we just wanted to talk about 
um, who is a direct and, and victim for purposes of applying. And, and again, while it may seem straightforward, this is an opportunity. There's various opportunities here within the U visa process to sort of be expansive about who can be included and who can be eligible for a U visa. So there are essentially two types of direct victims, but the U visa is also available to indirect victims of the crime. For the direct victims, um, it, you know, it's sort of the, the obvious person who has suffered the direct and proximate harm as a result of the qualifying criminal activity. Um, but, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a, in a second, uh, it may be that the direct victim of the crime um, is not the principal applicant for the U visa. So for example, if the direct victim of the crime is a U.S. citizen, there may be indirect victims who could um, become eligible as a result for the U visa. The um, regulations also talk about a uh, eligibility for a bystander victim. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because um, it is sort of, uh, I think we could agree maybe the third rail of U visa eligibility in some ways. Um, the regs sort of say that this is a unusually direct um, injury as a result of a qualifying criminal activity. Um, and, and it really needs to be um, a case-by-case -case sort of situation. The, the, the regulations provide the example of when a, a pregnant person suffers a miscarriage as a result of the trauma of witnessing a violent crime against someone that they may not be related to. <clears throat> or have no relationship to, that person may be eligible as a bystander victim. Um, for indirect victim, this is, um, again, something really to think, uh, keep in mind, especially uh, we see this becoming available to um, immigrant parents where a U.S. citizen child may be uh, the direct victim. But essentially, if the direct victim um, was uh, murdered or a victim of manslaughter and so is no longer alive, um, or if the direct victim is incompetent or incapacitated as a result of the crime, and again, this is another case-by-case -case determination, the following family members may qualify um, for the U visa as, a, as an indirect victim. So the spouse of the direct victim, um, as long as the spouse was not the perpetrator of the of the qualifying criminal activity, um, unmarried single children under the age of 21 of the direct victim, parents, if the victim is under 21 um, years of age at the time of the crime. So again, this is the context in which undocumented or immigrant parents of a U.S. citizen victim or, or even an, an immigrant child um, may have their own eligibility for um, the U visa or siblings under the age of 18 if the victim was under 21 at the time of the criminal activity. Um, for purposes of establishing eligibility, the indirect victim still must show that they were helpful in the criminal investigation, um, detection, investigation, or prosecution, and they still must show substantial physical or mental harm. And so that may be the more challenging aspect of, of, of these sorts of cases is establishing helpfulness and um, substantial physical or mental abuse as a result of the crime. Um, but it's it's certainly um, not impossible.
And then when documenting um, the substantial physical and emotional harm, our experience is that in many ways, USCIS, I think, needs to be spoon-fed this particular uh, part of the case that just because your client may have clearly suffered harm as a result of an assault and battery or sexual assault, um, USCIS still wants a description of what those injuries are um, beyond just saying, you know, I was I was assaulted. So they're going to need to describe in detail um, what the harm was um, and, and how it felt, essentially, and how they treated it and how long did it last and how did it interfere with their um, enjoyment of life or their relationships or their their day to day activity. Um, so it can be as simple as you know, as a result, I had bruises for the next two weeks and I needed to take Advil every day when I never needed to do that before. So those sorts of details, um, again, which may seem sort of obvious, but that is really what USCIS is looking for here. So for the physical abuse, obviously you're going to want to, um, again, describe ongoing pain and suffering. Um, if they sought medical treatment, try to review the medical records and see if they're appropriate for submitting to the government. Um, sometimes police departments will take photographs of, of injuries that they can be submitted as well. For the emotional, for showing the emotional abuse, um, the regs describe emotional abuse as harm or impairment of the emotional or psychological soundness of the victim. And the regs actually list these um, factors that could be considered um, when looking at whether or not the emotional abuse was um, substantial. Um, it's important to note here that um, just showing one of these things may not create eligibility or showing all of these things may not create eligibility according to the regs. And so um, it really needs to be, you know, you need to create again, a sort of whole picture about how, you know, but for this injury, I would not be experiencing or but for this criminal activity, I would not be experiencing this physical or emotional harm. Um, the, these factors um, are especially important to consider in cases, you know, such as violations of 209A uh, abuse prevention orders, where the violation itself may be a phone call from the defendant to the plaintiff violating the order. And so on its face, it does not appear um, to have caused any physical abuse. And so in that case, you're really going to want to flesh out the ways in which that phone call, that that violation, that criminal activity of violating the restraining order, um, either exacerbated pre-existing abuse. It may require you to to, um, you know, learn whether or not client had other um abusers or had other incidents of trauma in their life that this particular violation um created, um, you know, a, a exacerbated an existing underlying condition. Again, this is this is a place for you to 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 really think expansively about how to advocate for your client and show their eligibility. Um, and especially in those cases where the physical abuse itself may not seem that severe, but the client may have a history of abuse that was exacerbated by this criminal activity. And so what are those criminal activities? <clears throat> um, 
I'm not obviously going to read through this list, but it's important to um, keep in mind that it, it, qualifying criminal activities also include um, attempts to commit any of these crimes and also conspiracy to commit any of these crimes. Um, so it's federal, state law, or any similar activity. Um, and so you want to focus on the conduct of the of the crime and whether or not it meets um, the definition or if there's a similar statute um, that meets the definition. For example, in Massachusetts, there is no crime of domestic violence, but we have crimes that can be can be considered crimes of domestic violence. So for example, um, stalking or um, violations, as I mentioned before, of 209A orders are considered crimes of domestic violence. Uh, we have assault and various assault and battery um, statutes, which can be considered felonious assaults. Um, and then there is behavior or, or crimes that may occur in the workplace, um, such as um, witness tampering or um, uh, threats uh, is, is a common charge in Massachusetts, um, extortion, false imprisonment that may constitute qualifying criminal activities for purposes of U visa eligibility. Um, Julie, did you have anything else you wanted to add about this particular? No, I think this is great. I mean, I think that the, the bottom line is be creative. Um, look at the conduct that you have in front of you and try to identify how it might connect to elements of a crime. So you might also have like a fel felonious assault conduct where there is, say, a shod foot, you know, uh, is being, you know, hit someone. Um, and you're looking at, at what is the state crime? Does the conduct connect, even if that um, crime wasn't charged? Okay, so helpfulness. We're going to talk through, you know, what what is the standard in terms of helpfulness? And I think the bottom line here is that the standard is relatively low. And so I say that so that we can educate the government agencies who may be completing the U visa certification form, um, and also to understand sometimes agencies do interpret them to to meet a higher standard. So, you know, how do we identify that as that as it's happening? So so what is USCIS looking for when to determine helpfulness and how are they looking for it? So as a reminder, they're going to be looking for the certification form that's completed by a certifying agency. Um, and and, and um, they're looking to determine was that person helpful? in an investigation or prosecution. Um, investigation or prosecution refers to detection or investigation of a qualifying crime or criminal activity. Um, so that is just to say that detection alone is sufficient to constitute helpfulness as long as that individual has not refused or failed to provide information um, and assistance reasonably requested. So we often use the example of an individual, say the, the, an immigrant survivor, calling 911, providing information in that call or in, in response when, when law enforcement arrives. Um, that is helpfulness, right? Um, that has assisted them to detect the crime absent more that should still meet this requirement. Um, yet, how do you prove that this requirement is, is met? You, you prove it through a certification being completed. So the second piece is really encouraging and convincing that agency that say that conduct is sufficient for them to issue the certification, which it is, right? So criminal prosecution is not required. So you might have conduct that's only been reported to law enforcement. There's been no initiation of a prosecution and that is sufficient. 
Um, and there's no required outcome of the criminal prosecution. So let's say that um, there was, in that case, uh, the, there was the initi initiation of a prosecution, but ultimately um, there was a plea deal or or even charges were dismissed. Um, the question, the relevant question is, was your client, was the immigrant survivor helpful? Did they provide information to detect the crime? If that is, um, is the, the answer is yes, then they should meet this requirement. Now, a couple of notes about how do we prove helpfulness. So there is a special form, Form I-918 Supplement B, that um, the government agency has to complete. We encourage advocates, if you can, to go ahead and complete that form for the government agency. It often makes the, the process easier. You should be mindful of issues of discovery. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment, um, that, that that form itself, even the draft form, may be shared with defense counsel. Um, so one, you want to have discussed that with your client and think about how it might impact the criminal case. But two, if you're providing a factual description of the crime, you want to be mindful of that um, because if it's different than the factual description that they have on record, it could cause issues in the criminal case. So um, thinking about drafting at least the biographic information, uh, if not more. Um, and then that, that form has to be completed by that agency, generally by a designated official or the head of the agency. So if we have, say, a police department, that's going to be the chief, or if the chief has designated someone to complete that, it will be that person, plus you will need a letter from the chief saying they've designated that person to be their, their U visa, their designated cert certifier. And USCIS is looking to see a copy of that letter in addition to the certification and often will request it as well. The certification document is valid generally for six months, so that means it needs to be filed with USCIS within six months of receipt. So do keep that in mind in terms of the timing of making those requests. Um, again, it needs to be filed within six months. You can, of course, request a new one if you need to, but you never know if the agency will continue to provide it. So you want to think about that. Um, I often uh, will request that people sign the certifier signs in blue ink because we have had um, some certifications um, sort of we receive requests for evidence indicating that they're not original and you have to submit the original um, certification document to USCIS. Um, what agencies, we're not going to provide a sort of exhaustive list of agencies that may complete the certification form, but just to give you a, a sense of what agencies are certifying agencies, um, that includes judges, state, federal, local, law enforcement, and prosecutorial agencies, but it also includes government agencies that may detect the crime. Um, so again, they have the authority to detect. They may not move forward on a criminal investigation, but they can refer it. Um, so agencies like that include the U.S. Department of Labor, right? The EOC, the National Labor Relations Board. So agencies that may investigate workplace violations. It includes agencies like the the, the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families, right? Because they can detect um, crime, document it, um, and refer it elsewhere. Um, it also can include agencies like the, the Mass Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination. Um, so you might have a discrimination claim, it's reported, there's a qualifying crime. So you noticed um, discrimination itself is not a qualifying crime, but let's say um, there's sexual harassment and might be abusive sexual contact or sexual assault in, in the conduct that you're describing, then you could request that MCAD complete the certification and issue it to your client. And then that certification would be included in their package that's filed with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Okay, I think that's it.
So we have briefly talked about the requirements for the U visa, and we're going to shift gears for just a moment to talk about how this compares to the T visa. This is not a T visa training, so we're not going to go in depth on all of the requirements here. The reason why we're explaining about T visa eligibility is that one, you might engage with a client who is a survivor of human trafficking and a survivor of other related crimes um, for which they qualify for the U visa. And second, as we mentioned, the, the waiting times now for U visas are very, very long. Um, right now for the T visas, um, the waiting period is approximately a year and a half, two years, in some cases, um, less time than that. And so um, so it, it, it does benefit you to be thinking broadly. And if an individual is eligible for both, they can apply for both either concurrently or consecutively. So something important to keep in mind. As well for the T visa, um, whereas with the U visa, in terms of access to, to public benefits, when an individual is approved for the U visa, there are not many additional um, benefits for which they qualify, which is different than the T visa. When an individual qualifies for the T visa or a related benefit continued presence, um, they're issued a letter um, from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And essentially, they're eligible for the same benefits as refugees. So they, they generally qualify for refugee cash assistance, um, food stamps, uh, and other related benefits, um, and so, and including Mass Health, um, the Mass Health standard. And so, if an individual is eligible for both, there might be benefits of pursuing the T visa. Um, we'll talk in a moment about the requirements. They are distinct from the U visa, though similar. And so, you'd want to also do an individualized analysis of whether the individual meets all of those requirements as well. Um, and one final uh, benefit of the T visa is that that certification is not required. So. Let's imagine um, your client or youth, you know, on behalf of your client, assist them to report to law enforcement around the trafficking. They request the U visa certification. Um, they are not issued the certification. So let's just say that that agency just decides we don't have the time to issue the certification. See our, our later discussion of what they should be doing under state law, but let's just say they don't take action, then you can still apply for the T visa and document your request for both the certification and reporting and, um, and be successful in that application. So that's another benefit. I'm just going to spend a moment talking about what is trafficking. And the reason I'm doing this is that often we have sort of egregious images of um, of kidnapping, of, you know, the movie Taken when we think about the term trafficking. But in fact, um, trafficking is a quite broad form of exploitation and often broader than many lawyers and, and survivors think. Um, it includes labor and sex trafficking. So when I get calls, is this trafficking, would this person qualify? I'm often looking at this definitional framework that we have on the board here um, to determine is there a commercial sex act? Is there um, essentially sex for money um, or sex for in exchange of anything of value, sex for food, for drugs, et cetera? Or is there some form of forced labor, um, labor that's coerced, right? And um, and looking at this framework, we can determine whether, whether it meets it. But, um, but trafficking is distinct from smuggling, is distinct from 
um, crossing a border without authorization. It's really focused on the exploitation, this question of exploitation, either sexual exploitation or labor exploitation. So you might have a scenario where an individual, for example, um, pays a certain amount of money to um, be brought to the United States. Um, that would be smuggling, but it also may intersect with trafficking. So let's say they paid to enter the United States, they enter, and then that individual whom they paid said, well, that restaurant work that um, you know you were promised to work in um, is you know is not as you thought it would be. You actually have to work longer hours. You have to work off a larger amount of debt. Right? There might be fraud or coercion that happens, and that would be trafficking. So often, you know, as we've seen in recent cases that have been charged in Massachusetts, there's this intersection of smuggling and trafficking in cases. Um, so essentially, what is sex trafficking? So really briefly, we're looking at a commercial sex act. So sex for something of value. Um, and if that person is under 18 when the conduct occurred, so again, sex for anything of value, person is under 18, that is sex trafficking. That's all you have to show. If the person was under eight, uh, over 18 when it happened, you additionally have to show force, physical violence, um, fraud, so some form of deception or coercion. And coercion is generally defined as a pattern or practice to make someone fear serious harm. So, you know, you have to show those things plus a commercial sex act. And then additionally, labor trafficking involves, um, you'll see here, a prohibited action. So it might include recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, or obtaining of a person. So um, you notice it can include transportation, but it doesn't have to. And again, through the use of force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of subjection to involuntary servitude, uh, peonage, debt bondage, or slavery. So um, prohibited action, prohibited means, force, fraud, or coercion, and prohibited purpose. Um, here, often we're looking at involuntary servitude, which means a, generally a pattern or practice to make someone fear serious harm. And serious harm is really broadly defined. So it includes things like deportation harm, psychological harm, reputational harm, right? So here, um, threats of deportation in the workplace, if that individual was recruited for that work, would likely be sufficient to be labor trafficking, absent you know, whether or not they were brought into the country related to the scheme. So you want to think broadly about this definitional framework um, and how it might intersect with your case. And then how do you qualify? So I mentioned the requirements here just so that you see that they do track, they are similar to um, Oh, well, we'll get to the requirements in a minute, but they are somewhat similar to, um, to the U visa with some exceptions. So um, we talked a little bit about the definition of a severe form of trafficking in person. So I have to get this question, why, why, what's a severe form versus, uh, uh, you know, trafficking? Um, and just know that Congress defined what a severe form of trafficking might be. And that that is sort of the definitional framework, which is here, um, for who may qualify for a T visa. Um, the benefits are similar to the U visa, so the individual would have work authorization for four years. Um, they would have also a pathway to permanent residence. Just so you have a sense, it may be a little bit faster than the U visa context. So um, in the T visa context, if there's a criminal trafficking investigation and that case is closed and you obtain a, a letter from DOJ confirming that, that individual can apply immediately for, um, for their green card, whereas they might have to wait three years um, if they're in U status. And you can also petition for derivative family members. And in certain um, contexts, when there's imminent risk of harm, there's actually a broader array of family members that may qualify. But ultimately, what are the requirements? 
Here we go. So they have to be a, a survivor of a severe form of trafficking. We just talked about that definitional framework. They have to have been in the U.S., quote, on account of the trafficking. A couple of quick notes. I think anyone reading this plain language would say that sounds like uh, the individual has to have been brought into the U.S. related to the trafficking. And just a note that that's not how the how the um how the requirement has been interpreted. It has been interpreted to require often that if the individual has left the trafficking situation, they can show that their current presence is related to the trafficking. So often in, in cases um, we represent, we're showing that that individual is seeking or receiving mental health services related to the trafficking, they're cooperating in trafficking investigation, um, or there's other reasons why their current presence is related to the trafficking. They also have to uh, have responded to a reasonable request for assistance in the investigation or prosecution of human trafficking. So similar to the T visa context, um, there is a requirement to engage with law enforcement. And um, and that that element is shown through a certification form, which is similar to the U visa context. It's on form I-914 supplement B. And um, and the the official would certify this person was helpful and, and did cooperate with the investigation if they do not receive this certification. So if law enforcement says, you know, I'm not interested in certifying, I won't certify or just doesn't respond to your request, you can submit other evidence to show that they they reported and were helpful. Karen, do you mind just going back one slide if you can? Um, and. And so that is tremendously helpful. There are also two exceptions I'll just briefly mention to this requirement, which is different than the U visa context as well. If the individual is under 18 when the tra uh, trafficking happened, they are not required to cooperate. Um, so you do want to document that when you file. Or if they suffered um, significant trauma that prevents them from assisting law enforcement. I will say in practice, um, practitioners have indicated that the trauma exception may trigger greater scrutiny of the, the entire application. So often um, the suggestion is if you if your client agrees to do soft reporting, because again, you might be able to report to law enforcement, they may not have interest in investigating, and then you document that, um, that assistance to meet the requirement um, as a way to sort of move forward, but happy to answer questions if you all have them. And then finally, they have to have suffered um, extreme hardship involving unusual or severe or severe harm if removed. Um, this is not a requirement in the U visa context. So you want to make sure if you're pursuing this that it's something that your, your client can meet. Um, this standard, though it sounds like a heightened standard, and it is a heightened standard in practice, um, you know, often survivors can meet the standard by showing that they're receiving mental health services that wouldn't be available abroad, um, or that they would risk um, re-victimization if, if forced to return. So USCIS has adjudicated these in a fairly humanitarian way, although that that can always change. And then like in the U visa context, they also have to be admissible or otherwise qualify for a waiver. I will just briefly note that the waiver standard is slightly different in the T visa context. And we're not going to get into that today, but just know that the, 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 the standard you're meeting is somewhat um, distinct. So you're here learning about federal law, and, and we're going to talk to you a little bit about, we'll slip some state law in there as well. Um, what is exciting is that there is, is recent legislation that was passed in Massachusetts um, that establishes certain uh, procedural guidelines or protections for immigrant survivors and their advocates when they're requesting U and T visa certification uh, 
in general with different agencies. It was passed in 2021 um, with the goal of both this dual-fold, two-fold goal of, um, you know, ensuring that immigrant survivors have um, access to benefits and know their rights in this context, and then also encouraging immigrant survivors to engage with law enforcement or other government agencies. So what does the law do? The law is located at, at Chapter 258F of the Mass General Laws. It requires that certifying agencies, one, respond to requests for UNT visa certifications within 90 days, absent the language in the statute is extenuating circumstances beyond the agency's control. Um, they also have to create and maintain a UNT visa certification policy. So that's a great place to start. If you're thinking we want to approach, say, the Chelsea Police Department, um, maybe we want to obtain a copy of that certification policy so we understand how they're supposed to be adjudicating these requests. They also have to report data about certifications to the Executive Office for Public Safety and Security. I always forget security and safety, EOPS. Um, and so that first report has been issued. If you're interested, please feel free free to reach out to any of us. We're happy to share the report, which is publicly available. And what it, it provides is um, how many certifications have been, have certification requests have been received by that agency in the last calendar year, and then how many were approved and how many were denied and how many remain pending. Why um, was this legislation needed? Um, the legislation is a result of really a coalition of immigrant survivors and advocates and in response to other states also passing similar legislation. And the goal really is to ensure that across different jurisdictions, there are the same or similar policies, that those policies are known by the immigrant survivor um, and also that they are um, adjudicated in line with these, these policies and also to create additional data. I think before the legislation was passed, there was very little data about how many requests were being submitted and what the what the outcome of those requests ultimately were. And this is just what is a certifying agency um, and, um, and how sort of what are the requirements under the law. So the certifying agency under mass law, it does track federal law and it includes, you know, state federal uh, law enforcement, as well as other entities that can, quote, detect um, the, the qualifying crime. So we encourage you when you're thinking about this law, really to reference the federal law and that definitional framework for who is a certifying agency. Um, it also does require that they engage and respond to requests in this way. One, that they um, they respond within 90 days um, and they respond if it's approved by completing and signing the certification form. If it's denied, it issuing a written denial of that request, that denial should be without prejudice. And what that means is that you or, or the immigrant survivor could submit a new request um, in the future and that request would need to be responded to within 90 days as well. Um, and it also has to include the, the reason the request does not meet the requirements. So it, it should provide you with some notice as to why they are denying it. And then in extenuating circumstances outside of the control of the agency um, where they can't respond within 90 days, by law, they're required to issue a written explanation of the delay, the process they're going to undertake to respond, and a projected time frame for such a response. So this is incredibly important. We encourage you to reference this when you're making requests that the law does provide that a response is needed within the 90-day time frame. 
And what does this mean? Um, it means that we encourage you to educate certifying agencies about the mandates. This is a relatively new law. We're doing a lot of education in the working group that um, of which you know Karen, Jen, and many others are a part to try to educating educate agencies. Um, but it's important that that you're a part of that effort as well. It means that you can ask for an agency certification policy, or even if it's not provided do a public records request and request um, request to see it. It also means that um, those in, in, we have a working group that works on UNT visa issues. We're also collecting those policies. Um, so you can always inquire with, with one of us as well. Um, you're gonna be sort of asking them to certify within 90 days. There is also relief um, in Massachusetts Superior Court. Um, we we um, were part of uh, the first lawsuit to try to challenge uh, the denial of certification um, in Plymouth County and, and recently a Massachusetts Superior Court uh, remanded that case for a new decision. And so, um, and the, the, the case was brought um, under the State Administrative Procedure Act as well as, as a, as a, 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 a yeah, primarily under the state APA. And so um, if you have questions about that and about potential litigation options, please feel free to reach out. Um, or if you are seeing patterns of non-compliance, I think generally we're trying to track what agencies are not complying with the law and think about how to engage, whether that's through litigation or um, more informal advocacy and outreach strategies. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to switch gears or sort of back into the gear of going through the requirements or the, the benefits of the U visa process. Um, and I'm going to talk for a few minutes about derivatives. Um, and so, you know, whenever we're thinking, so the U visa process um, does allow the principal petitioner to um, file petitions for certain derivatives. And again, this is sort of a uh, a broad, expansive category of family members, um, and so important to to consider this when representing a um, U visa uh, petitioner. So there is a form; it's the form one nine eight A petition for qualifying family member, um, and. As with any petition process under under uh, immigration law, it's important to keep track of age outs and magic numbers being 18 and 21 years old. And also, um, in some cases, uh, you know, what we call marry outs. So uh, derivatives um, marrying or um, divorces happening. So um, <clears throat> in general, before I go through the, the, the different family members, um, derivatives may be residing in the United States or outside of the United States. Um, and you know, not to be confused with indirect victim eligibility, the derivatives do not need to show helpfulness or substantial harm. Um, but you know, interesting at times or strategic at times to think about whether or not certain derivatives may be an indirect victim that could have their own um, U visa petition where they are the principal instead of being the derivative um, that, again, is sort of a case-by-case -case basis, but just wanted to highlight that um, a derivative could also be an indirect victim for purposes of their own petition, um, and so something to think about. And as always, when representing multiple family members, just be mindful of any conflicts of interest that may come up and sort of establishing 
that as a framework with your clients at the beginning of representation and the implications of what a conflict, if a conflict arises, what that might mean for, for your representation. Um, you know, always a tough, fun conversation to have with family members, but I think it's important to at least have that conversation at the beginning of representation so that they're, if it does come up, it's not the first time they're, they're hearing about it. Um, and so, so spouses of uh, the principal petitioner, um, oh, well, sorry, again, before I get into that, the principal's 1918 um, needs to be approved before any of the derivatives can be approved. And so if the principal's uh, petition is denied, then none of the derivatives will be approved. Um, and so again, um, that might come into your analysis of whether or your strategy as to who's going to be a derivative versus an indirect victim. So for the spouse of the petitioner, they need to be the spouse at the time of the adjudication of the U visa. So they don't necessarily need to be married at the time that the 9118 is, um, is filed. Um, and again, as Julie mentioned earlier, when looking at the sources of law on this, it's important to review not only the, the regulations in the statute, but also um, <clears throat> the, the instructions and the policy manual, because all of these, there are cases that come up during, you know, the, during the last few years that have sort of tweaked who's eligible here, and, and it's not all necessarily in the regulations. And the fact that uh, you don't need to be married at the time of the 9118 filing, um, is one of those provisions. Um, divorce will terminate spouse's eligibility to obtain that derivative status. That said, in practice, um, you know, it, it is somewhat difficult to withdraw a 918A petition on behalf of a divorced spouse. Um, but and you need to affirmatively inform USCIS that um that a divorce has happened. Um, children of the petitioner um, are eligible. So children need to be single, unmarried, under 21 years old um, at the time that the 9118 is filed. Stepchildren are eligible as long as the marriage occurred before the stepchild's 18th birthday. Um, marriage of ch child derivatives will terminate the child's uh, eligibility. So again, important to, to make sure that this is known to everyone at the time of the filing. Um, the parents of a petitioner are also eligible um, as long as the principal is under 21 at the time of the filing of the 918. And um, that also includes step parents, again, as long as the um, marriage occurred um, before the petitioner's 18th birthday. For siblings of the principal petitioner, they need to be unmarried under 18 um, at the time of the filing, and the petitioner also needs to be under 21 at the time of the filing. So again, if you're considering including siblings as derivatives, important to be mindful of all of the birthdays. Um, important to note, again, um, the the emphasis or the, the 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 magic filing date it's the date that the 918 is filed so if the petitioner files the 918 um, before they turn 21 and before the siblings turn 18 even if the 918a is filed later after the initial filing um the 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 ages are preserved as of the date of the 918 filing um, and for siblings they need to have at least one parent in common um, 
And again, marriage will um, terminate eligibility if, if marriage occurs before the 9118 uh, is approved. Um, the the other sort of helpful aspect to the to the derivative um, benefit is that they are also eligible for the waiver of of certain grounds of or most grounds of inadmissibility similar to the petitioner. Um, and so again, if there if there are eligible um, family members and and people are about to age out, it's really important to try and um, preserve their eligibility and and you know prioritize the filing of these cases on time so that they can benefit from that that broad waiver, which we will talk about in a minute. And then another requirement of the of the U visa process is that an affidavit is filed. Um, I know we traditionally file affidavits in, in all sorts of cases, but it is actually required as part of the U visa process. Um, and you know, similar to the discussion we had earlier about providing details of of the harm that was um, experienced, the affidavit is the place where where a lot of this needs to be um, developed. And so, the petitioner should address what the criminal act qualifying criminal activity was, where where it happened, when it happened, <clears throat> um, describe how they were helpful to law enforcement, what was their role in, in the detection, in the investigation, in the prosecution? You know, did they make the phone call? Did they talk to the police when they showed up on the scene? Did they go to the meeting with the, <clears throat> the district attorney? Did they go to the courthouse? Even if they didn't testify, were they, were they waiting and available to testify if needed? Um, did they communicate to the district attorney if they were not available or if they didn't want to testify? You know, what what did all of those um, those different phases of the the detection, investigation, prosecution, what was their role and, and what was the petitioner doing? Um, and and then finally, again, they need to describe what the physical or emotional harm was that they they suffered. Um, and it may be helpful for those of you who have done VAWA self-petitions to sort of use the standard in, in those cases for when documenting um, cases that involve a long history of abusive behavior, um, you know, that it may be that the abuse you're describing is a pattern of, um, you know, harm that happened over a series of years. And um, you may also want to detail what what services that the person obtained that they would not have otherwise obtained or sought out but for the criminal activity. Okay, so we promised to move on to more advanced issues and we're going to start talking a little bit about uh, waivers of inadmissibility. Our goal in doing this is just to give you a a general background of when a waiver might be needed and where to go if you think they might, um, if if you think you may need to submit one. We're not going to go into deep, 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 deep detail about completing the, the waiver form, um, but do welcome questions as well. So um, U visa petitioners are subject to the grounds of inadmissibility. 
uh, I'm sure many of you are already familiar with INA Section 212 that lays out all of the grounds of inadmissibility. I encourage you as you're thinking about, um, you know, as you're representing a client to review whether they might trigger any of those grounds of inadmissibility. We have not provided an exhaustive list here, but we've provided a list of, of some of the most common inadmissibility grounds. And um, I often tell clients, I think it's incredibly common that we submit a waiver application with, um, with the U visa application um, and generally fairly routine, but you do have to think about making sure that you've established eligibility for the waiver and that you've completed the forms correctly and include um, either the, the $930 fee or the, the waiver, the fee waiver with it. So common inadmissibility issues um, or grounds, um, in entry without inspection is incredibly common and routinely waived. Um, you wanna be thinking a little bit about if that individual uh, might've assisted someone, including family members to enter without inspection. So that, that might include um, you know, family members. So mom sent money for a smuggler to bring their child to the United States. Um, that would likely be an inadmissibility issue and something that you would want to um, include in the application flag and include a waiver. Um, as you do this analysis, you're also going to want to think a little bit about what you're disclosing in the application. If you were to not have success in the U visa context, um, how might that disclosure impact eligibility for other, other benefits? Um, while keeping in mind that if you don't uh, seek to waive or uh, you know, seek to waive or do the accurate analysis of the inadmissibility issues at this stage, um, you might position your client to have issues at the green card or adjustment stage. Other issues that you might think about are admissions or criminal convictions. Um, you want to think about and know the individual's criminal history. Um, you may, uh, it's you know, best practice to, uh, to do the Massachusetts Corey, the criminal history request, as well as an FBI check so that you really have a sense of both the immigration history and um, the criminal history of the individual and any inadmissibility issues that might, might arise. Um, entry after a prior removal from the U.S., right? Um, I want to think about that as well as how many years had passed. Um, misrepresentation or fraud to uh, in the in in terms of uh, for the purpose of an immigration benefit. So, you know, did an individual, for example, submit false information as a part of a visa application when they're applying to enter? Um, and um, often I'll just mention that could be connected to the crime. You know, we see in the trafficking context, often that individual was brought here and maybe the, the trafficker themselves assisted and provided false information. Um, but you want to do an assessment of, of whether that um, is an inadmissibility issue. Danger to self or others. Um, so suicidal or homicidal ideation, even if it's related to the crime, um, might trigger inadmissibility. And so you want to be thinking about that. Um, as well as any type of drug use, drug trafficking, um, keeping in mind that marijuana, even though it may be legal in Massachusetts, remains a federal crime. So you want to think a little bit about how it might impact um, the waiver analysis. The public, just quickly, the public charge ground of inadmissibility does not apply to U visa petitioners. So public charge ground being that, that an individual would um, potentially be a public charge if they're receiving um, public benefits. Uh, and just note that certain survivors generally of violent crime and domestic violence, um, the, for them, the ground of inadmissibility does not apply. So you would not necessarily need a waiver.
And Karen, if you can click us over, what one of the things to keep in mind with the U visa and one of the benefits of the U visa is that um, the the it's one of the only visas where inadmissibility grounds may be waived by the, by USCIS, and that's all inadmissibility grounds, um, with the exception of Nazi persecution, genocide, torture, or extrajudicial killing. Um, so that is important. You might have an individual who's actually eligible for other forms of relief, but there's no existing waiver, and so that might be why they want to pursue the U visa. Um, and you you can um, learn more about the the waiver standard uh, at two twelve D fourteen, and that's going to be how your client may qualify. Um, what form should they submit? So generally the waiver form, I often get this question because form I-601 is also a waiver and no, that is not the form that you complete in this context. There's a specified, there's a specified waiver in the U visa context that's also applicable in other contexts, but it's called the I-192. Technically it's, it's called an application for advanced permission to enter as a non-immigrant, even though that individual likely isn't applying to enter, they're applying for admission, um, although they could be applying to, to enter. Um, so so they would be completing the I-192. That form generally has a, a fee of $930. So we didn't mention that U visa or the T visa does not have a fee associated with it. That's the good news, but the waiver does. And so that can be a considerable barrier for, for survivors in applying. There are um, is a fee waiver, which um, in, in the most complicated way is form I-912, which you would submit with your form I-192, um, and you would indicate why that individual um, might qualify for a fee waiver, whether it's that they um, are receiving a means-tested benefit and including a confirmation letter, or they're under a certain um, a percentage of the federal poverty guidelines. So for the waiver, uh, you need to show that that individual, um, that essentially it would be in the public or national interest for them to receive the benefits. So you want to think about factors like, um, you know, are they cooperating in an investigation? Um, are they receiving services that are related to the crime, right, that they couldn't receive um, in their home country? Are there other factors to show that it would be in the national or public interest? Um, and um, you know, simple inadmissibility factors are typically waived, so entry without inspection, but you do want to make an effort to establish um, the that the individual qualifies. That might include in an affidavit uh, just addressing the public interest factors specifically or submitting additional letters um, of good moral character or other evidence to show why it's in the national or public interest. Yeah, and and not going to repeat too much of what uh, Julie said, but um, I, traditionally I include, I have client address the the inadmissibility issues in the their affidavit that they're submitting in support of their U visa petition. Um, and I also devote space to it in the cover letter as well and, and sort of connecting those dots for USCIS. Um, it's, you want to be explicit and, and state which grounds of inadmissibility you're seeking to have waived, that the that the petitioner is seeking to have waived. Um, and again, ways in which, you know, USCIS um, always wants to see that people have rehabilitated themselves. So describing the ways, you know, describing the length of time, if there's a criminal history that, it, that it's been since the, the, the criminal history or the convictions or the arrests or um, whatever that criminal history looks like or and or if there are, are drug or alcohol abuse issues, you know, what steps were taken, how long it's been since those, um, those uh, were issues in, in the petitioner's life. 
Um, and in the cover letter, you know, you want to emphasize that the the fact that your client reported or cooperated or were helpful to law enforcement um, benefits or is in the public interest to the larger community in in showing that um, immigrants um, should and, and be helpful to law enforcement um, whenever is reasonable. Um, and that's all I have to say about the, the affidavit. Um, and then just sort of practically, um, the U visa packet, um, they all go to the Vermont Service Center. Um, they have a, a, a U and T visa unit there. Um, the adjudicator, the officers there are trained on um, issues related to, to crimes that are um, commonly experienced by undocumented immigrants uh, or immigrants in the United States. Um, and so they are supposed to be adjudicating these cases through that lens. Um, we know that in, in the last few years, because the Vermont Service Center um, has become sort of so under-resourced or, or there are too many petitions, they have started adjudicating uh, U visa petitions at the Nebraska Service Center. And so at some point during your client's um, pending petition, it may get transferred, you may get a transfer notice that the, the petition is being transferred to the Nebraska Service Center. And from that point on, any inquiry should be directed to the Nebraska Service Center. At the end, we do have uh, email addresses for both the Vermont Service Center and the Nebraska Service Center if you need to try and do some case inquiries. Um, and hopefully they will respond to you within uh, 30 days or so. Um, but the components of the packet, um, you know, best practice is to submit a detailed cover letter, again, sort of um, describing the ways in which um, uh, the petitioner meets the, the eligibility requirements, the ways in which they uh, suffered substantial harm, the ways in which they were helpful to law enforcement, and then if if needed, addressing any of the, um, the inadmissibility issues. Um, and, you know, best practice is to try and submit as many um, items uh, upfront as as possible, including petitions for qualifying family members, um, but uh, including um, the the affidavit, which is a requirement. Um, your 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 filing will be rejected if an affidavit is not um, included. Um, Work permits are issued sort of incident to status once the 918 is approved. However, and we will talk about this uh, in, in just a moment, um, there is now a, a, a a bona fide determination process that occurs while the visa is pending. And if your client's petition is found to be, um, you know, meet the bona fide um, criteria, they can be issued a work permit um, as a result of that determination. And so best practice would be to have a 765 based on the deferred action um, eligibility code C14 pending at the time that the bona fide determination is made. So if possible, try to file that up front as well. Um, and then obviously, you know, any other supporting um, documentation, including police reports, if eligible, uh, criminal dockets, if, if um, applicable, um, 
other supporting documents, perhaps um, photos of um, any injuries, maybe um, a letter of support from a therapist or, or another agency that was providing services to your client, um, perhaps medical documents. Um, I would encourage people to be sort of mindful about the amount of documentation you're providing to the government. Um, if they, if your client has otherwise met their burden, that you know you may have a very detailed affidavit and police report and a criminal docket that shows um, that your client testified at a trial and the defendant was found guilty. And um, so you may want to consider then whether or not you need to also submit extremely detailed medical records um, for client if they've if they've sort of met their burden already. Um, you know, I, I, I do feel strongly that just because somebody has been um, a victim of a crime and they're seeking this sort of benefit that they don't need to provide the government with every single piece of paper related to the, the private aspects of their life if they've otherwise met their burden. Um, and then, um, as Julie mentioned as well, just um, the the 912 request for a fee waiver um, for sort of the more expensive forms here, including the 765 and the 192. Okay, so I'm just going to briefly hit a couple of issues. Some of these have come up already, but just these are miscellaneous issues you should just be aware of and be thoughtful about when you're when you're representing clients. Um, one is the the standard that your client needs to meet, and this relates to what Jen was just raising. Um, in general, the standard is is that any credible evidence can be considered, um, and and so we do have a you know I think there is a an interest in not heightening the burden that is on survivors in terms of meeting these requirements, um, and and how do you meet the standard of any credible evidence? Generally, it's it's providing that evidence or if if it is abs there's evidence that is absent, just explaining that it's not present. Um, and that this is a lower standard in recognition of the challenges that survivors of crime face in in obtaining evidence. And so, you know, um, it also means that that testimony, that written a written statement from your client should be considered sufficient um, in addition to the certification form um, in in um, establishing and meeting the burden. Of course, we're going to try to submit other evidence to the extent we can, but being mindful mindful of um, concerns around inconsistencies, right? Um, so the more that we submit, the more likelihood that there is are inconsistencies and also not wanting to over-document to the extent that we, we can. Um, also, we should keep in mind throughout the process of both assembling the application and submitting it um, that there may be an ongoing criminal investigation or prosecution, and there may be discovery issues that emerge in, in that context. I, I should note, too, in the civil context, there may also be discovery concerns and related cases. So um, what does that mean? Um, it means, especially in, we can talk about the criminal context, um, that the prosecutor will have a duty to turn over any evidence that may be exculpatory. and um, it is likely that a request for, for U visa certification would be deemed exculpatory because it gives rise theoretically to motive to lie. So what would defense counsel argue? They are, in many of these cases, arguing that the, the, the immigrant survivor has a motive to lie about the circumstances of the crime in order to obtain an immigration benefit. So that might be their defense. Of course, the prosecutor can still refute that defense or undermine that defense by showing, um, you know, they didn't have 
have knowledge about it or that these there's independent evidence establishing that they were a victim of the crime. Um, but generally, there is um, once that certification request has been made, whether that's orally or in writing, um, and whether the certification request is ultimately uh, responded to positively, there may be a duty um, to provide that information to defense counsel. So what does that mean? It means that as a, as a competent counsel, you're likely explaining that to your client before you make the make that request so that they understand there may be benefits of making the request now in terms of being able to receive the certification and go ahead and apply for the process. There may also be some negatives of making the request now in terms of, of the ultimate request being turned over to defense counsel, and they um, may use it at trial. Trial, um, in terms of impeaching the credibility of, of witnesses, if there is a trial, right? Um, and then that survivor might be able to decide whether they want to make that request now or, um, or in the future. Uh, it also means you should be thoughtful about what you're including in your request. So, um, so perhaps you don't want to include a detailed factual description of the crime when you're submitting it a request, um, because that will likely also become part of the criminal case. And there's a potential potential for multiple victim statements and often inconsistencies. Um, additionally, I'll just briefly mention that um, this might also be a reason why you're not sharing with the prosecutor about whether the U visa application has been filed or what the status of that application is, um, because the you know we know from experience that the more that is ultimately shared about that that application, the more likely likely um, they might be able to subpoena and successfully subpoena those, those records. Um, how that could play out, you know, we're also kind of thinking about you might have a record, you're working with the survivor, you're drafting statements, um, and then you're, you're su su ultimately submitting the application to USCIS. And um, it is possible that defense counsel could try to subpoena those records, the records that you're um, maintaining with the survivor, as well as records with USCIS. Um, if that were to happen, there would be an opportunity to challenge um, the subpoena, usually through a motion to quash. And there might be arguments that you could make, um, for example, if those documents are privileged in the context of working with you, um, or if um, there's, there's a provision around um, the federal protection of those documents under 8 USC 1367, which provides that USCIS should not uh, release those documents to external agencies. Um, that would sort of be litigated so you do want to be thinking about these issues. Um, you know, while they don't come up that frequently, they they can come up, and you want to be mindful of protecting privilege, and also um, thinking about how, what you might do if you did receive a subpoena for for records. In addition to that, um, your client might also just ask you about the risks of engaging with law enforcement um, or immigration agencies when they are reporting the crime. You know, I think it's often a best practice for that survivor to have representation to both report and be present in those interviews. But we also um, often know that that there isn't capacity, especially um, among legal services, to be present in those interviews. And so, um, so it is important that individuals understand what are the risks of stepping forward um, and engaging with different agencies, um, and to the extent they can have representation and support in that context. And then also to the extent you're representing survivors, it's just important to be mindful that there are other benefits for which they may qualify, um, including victim compensation, which is a, a fund of last resort. Um, when an individual survivor generally um, was a victim 
victim of a crime in Massachusetts and also reported that crime within uh, within five days or shows good cause for failure to report that crime. Um, There's also maybe avenues for civil damages in certain contexts. Um, For example, in the trafficking context, there's both federal and state remedies in the civil context, as well as criminal restitution. So individuals may have the right to criminal restitution, which usually happens associated with the criminal process and is something that the the prosecutor would request on the the survivor's behalf. So um, you can be an important stopgap in making sure that that the clients you serve both apply and have information about their rights in that context. So we are now going to talk a little bit about the waitlist bona fide determinations and deferred actions. So just as a bit of context, we spoke about how now the waitlist for um, the cap has been reached for U visas. It could be a, an astonishing, you know, 28, 29 or more years um, before an individual would receive U non-immigrant status. So what does that individual do in the interim? Um, there has been a process to apply for deferred action. Um, and Jen mentioned generally the best practice is to include a work work permit application for this form of deferred action in your initial filing, um, just so that there isn't there aren't additional wait times associated with the application. So I'm going to briefly walk through what the wait list is and also what bona fide determinations are um, and tell you what we know about the process now. So um, what is the wait list? Um, because of this annual cap, which is statutory, regulations have allowed USCIS to maintain a wait list. Um, it's estimated that they place about uh, 10,000 approvable applicants on the wait list annually, and they're eligible for deferred action and employment authorization if placed on this wait list. Separately, in June 2021, USCIS implemented the bona fide determination process, often um, called BFD process, which provides for employment authorization and deferred action to eligible survivors of qualifying crimes while they wait for final adjudication. So deferred action, many of you know this, is not technically an immigration status, but does provide that they're placed on a lower priority for removal and as a practical matter provides for access to employment authorization and proof of some form of status. Um, And the policy applies to all uh, petitions pending as of June 14th, 2021, as well as petitions filed on or after this date. And so generally as a part of that process, what USCIS is gonna do is review the application, determine whether it it has been met, sort of the bona fide elements have been met. And um, and then at that time, if eligible, issue this um, this work card authorization. Um, if those, those elements have not been met, they're also issuing a request for additional um, information at that time too. And Julie, I don't know if you know, I know we've talked about this, but the the sort of difference at this point between, or is anybody being put on the wait list or are, are people only getting deferred action as a result of a bona fide determination? You know, it's a question for you too. I have not heard of now that they've implemented the BFD process of the, the wait list being um, used or impacting folks, but um, but it may also be, you know, the applications that we're seeing and filing. Um, so primarily from my experience has now been bona fide determinations and that that's been happening at the sort of three to four year, pro- or they're, they're projecting it happening at three to four year process uh, timeframes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so... Um... 
we are devoting just one slide to the adjustment of status process. Um, obviously, I think we could probably spend the next hour talking about you-based adjustment of status, but just wanted to um, have a couple of things on your radar. Um, so the U-Visa petition, once it's approved, is the visa or the non-immigrant status is issued for four years. Um, after three years of holding non-immigrant status, um, the petitioner is, or the visa holder, is eligible to apply for adjustment of status. Um, and so once they file the I-45, their underlying new non-immigrant status is extended automatically, and they should receive a separate notice saying that their status has been extended while the adjustment or while the I-485 is pending. Um, and so they will not lose time um, out of status while the 485 is pending, because as you can imagine, it, it may take longer or it may take a long time for the I-485, the U-based I-485 to be adjudicated. Um, and and so the underlying um, U visa is is um, extended. So at the time of the adjustment, um, the applicant for adjustment must show that um, they did not unreasonably refuse to provide assistant, assistance to law enforcement. And so this is um, important to keep in mind if at the time they filed the U visa petition, the, the criminal um, investigation or prosecution was still ongoing and it had not finished. Um, at the time of adjustment, um, the applicant needs to continue to show that they, that they continue to be helpful um, while they held U visa status. Um, in some cases, uh, USCIS may request that you recertify, obtain recertification from the law enforcement agency to sort of confirm that the person, um, that the petitioner continued to be helpful. Um, and we've certainly had that um, happen. And so it, it, it's important for your client to know that just because they are issued the U visa does not, it, it means that they must still continue to be helpful in order to be uh, eligible for adjustment in three years or um, before the, the four-year anniversary of their U visa when it expires. Um, at the time that they apply, um, they need to be able to show that granting them permanent residency is justified on humanitarian grounds to ensure family unity or in the public interest. Um, and so again, um, you should probably devote some time in your cover letter explaining that. And, and best practice is also to provide an affidavit from the uh, applicant um, sort of explaining how they meet these um, requirements. And they also need to be able to show that they have had three years of continuous presence in the United States. And so they need to provide this uh, if they can, through documentary uh, evidence. So sort of the usual uh, documents that we use to show continuous presence or, or residency in the United States, you know, tax returns, leases, bank statements, um, letters from employers. Um, I think best practice is at the time that your client is approved to prepare them, that in three years, they are going to need to produce all these documents. And so I encourage clients to devote a box or a folder or a, a bag somewhere in their house where they just uh, put those documents on a monthly basis so that when the three years uh, anniversary comes around, they're not trying to recreate their three years, the, the past three years of their life at that time. It's it's much easier, obviously, to have those documents available to you as you go along. Um, they are also required to, um, you know, show 
uh, that they've held a passport, a current passport through those uh, while in you non-immigrant status. And they will need to be able, they will need to show, um, uh, make a copy of every single page of their passport to show um, if there's been any travel in and out of the United States during those three years. Um, they, there is, um, they, well, travel on the U visa is again one of those more complicated things in general. Um, if if the person um, entered without inspection, um, we advise them not to travel because they will trigger inadmiss further inadmissibility grounds if they leave or if they uh, entered on a visa and have been here for more than three ten years or sorry more than a year, they will trigger the three and ten year bar. Um, and so we generally advise clients not to travel on the U visa, but that they will be able to travel once. Um, once they are adjusted. Um, <clears throat> um, Jen, sorry, just yeah. to clarify, at this adjustment of a status is at the time that they have been granted with that U visa work permit, not with a deferred action or the bona fide one, right? Yes, good point, Karen. Yes, exactly right. So time and deferred action, if they if a bona fide determination is made before the U visa is granted, that time, which can be a year to two years, does not count towards that three years of continuous presence. The continuous presence clock begins running at the time that the 918 is um, approved. Okay, and then we're we're going to shift to considerations or strategies. If you are representing U visa petitioners who are in removal proceedings or who have um, outstanding removal orders, um, to note uh, the Immigration Court EOIR does not have jurisdiction to adjudicate the U visa petition that is under the jurisdiction of USCIS. Um, and so any petitions need to be filed with USCIS and not with the immigration court. Um, the regulations, and, and again, I encourage you if you have um, clients who are in proceedings or with re outstanding removal orders, the regulations specifically address um, the provisions available to U visa petitioners who are in removal proceedings. Um, and they generally encourage um, ICE or, or DHS to use its discretion to file a joint motion to terminate proceedings in cases where the respondent is in ongoing removal proceedings. Um, realistically or practically, I think uh, your client really needs to have a pending 918 before OPLA would engage with you um, on seeking or to, to join in a motion to terminate. Um, I, I can really only speak to sort of our recent experience with um, the Boston OPLA office. Um, and it, it does not appear that they're willing to join uh, to terminate where there is a um, pending, um, but we encourage everyone to make those arguments or to file those motions unilaterally for, for cases where your client has um, a pending 918. Um, or you know to ask the court for continuance in those cases where where to give time to USAIS to adjudicate the 918 um, while the removal proceedings are, are ongoing and of course again to admin close as well would be um, would be an option as well um, after the U visa has been approved. Um, and where there is an outstanding removal order, again, the regulations encourage OPLA to agree to file a joint motion to reopen and dismiss. Again, my experience has been um, that OPLA really wants to wait until your client has adjusted before they will agree to 
terminate or to, to reopen and terminate in cases where there's an outstanding removal order. Um, this practice or this policy on the part of OPLA varies from OPLA office uh, nationally. Um, and so depending on where the uh, outstanding removal order is, I would just encourage you to, to first reach out to OPLA and see if they are willing to join in terminating in cases where your client has already been approved. Um, uh, and see if they're willing to do it before your client adjusts. Um, and again, I'm, there's some various case law, uh, Coronado Acevedo, um, again, where the, just encouraging um, or, or sort of giving permission to EOIR to, to grant termination or dismiss in cases where um, the respondent has a, a pending U visa uh, before USCIS. So again, just sort of highlighting resources um, and case law where, where the issue of administrative closure or continuances in before the immigration court um, have been addressed and, and specifically um, a 2009 ICE memo um, that sort of directs OPLA to request a continuance. Um, that has not been my experience. Experience, but but they my experience has been that they're not objecting. Uh, my experience is relatively limited in this in this um, uh, this particular circumstance. But um, you know, I think if other people have other experiences more recently with Opla, I'd be interested in this space to hear uh, about those experiences. Um, the BIA in, in two matters again has has held that the, the court has the authority to admin close um, or continue a matter uh, when there's a pending U visa. And then finally, um, there is a 2011 memo um, called the Morton Memo, sort of informally, um, which still remains in effect, um, that encourages um, ICE when, when um, making decisions around enforcement um, to take into consideration whether or not the respondent is um, a victim of crime, a witness to crime, or is sort of otherwise um, being helpful to law enforcement um, in, in deciding whether or not to, you know, place a person in proceedings or effectuate the removal of somebody. Um, you know, I, I would just sort of encourage everyone to keep reminding OPLA of the existence of these memorandums um, and reminding the court of the existence, you know, of the, of the various case laws when making your arguments um, just to keep, you know, to keep these, keep these arguments going because, um, you know, there is the backlog with the immigration court is just so significant and the, the added sort of uh, dynamic of having your client in removal proceedings um, while they're, uh, you know, being witnesses or being cooperating with law enforcement, um, you know, just the benefit of having removal proceedings terminated or administratively closed or continued. Um, it, it's just, um, you know, it's important to keep reminding the court and OPLA of, of the, the policies here that they've implemented. And then finally, um, last week or the week before, USCIS um, announced that they are creating this, um, am I right, Julie, hybrid or 
sort of remote service center that is specifically established to, quote, improve quality and efficiency of humanitarian caseload processing. Um, and they have said that they're going to be focusing on particular types of cases to begin with, but including these bona fide determinations for uh, U visa petitions. Um, and so we are hopeful that this may um, result in more bona fide determinations, maybe uh, speeding up bona fide determinations of pending U visa cases. Um, there is an information or national webinar stakeholder event coming up on the 20th. Um, and so if the timing works, I would, uh, you know, you may want to check that out. It's, um, I think you registered through the USCIS website um, where they're going to, you know, provide more information about it. But this is, again, it's just something to have on your radar. Um, <clears throat> because I think if, if, more of our of our clients can get work permits while their U visas are pending. It makes the U visa process a little more um, sort of accessible and, and meaningful at this point, um, instead of considering a five to seven year wait for just a bona fide determination and then a 30 year wait for a U visa. And then just wanted to highlight some of the resources that are available for practitioners and, and highly recommend the ILRC um, <clears throat> Immigrant Legal Resource Center um, U visa manual. The ILRC issues various manuals and they and they do update them. I think the most recent one is from 2019, but it, it is really comprehensive. Um, and so I think if you plan on doing a lot of U visas, it's worth the investment. Um, there's a lot of sample uh, filings and all those memos I mentioned are in there and um, just a lot of practice tips and nuance that, you know, are really helpful. Um, there is also um, sort of more domestically, the MCLE Immigration Practice Manual Chapter 33 is, is um, addressing immigrant remedies, immigration remedies for survivors of crime. Um, ASISA is a national um, organization that has um, provides technical assistance, also has a, a very active national listserv uh, where, where practitioners can post questions and, and get responses. Um, and we also, we didn't mention this at the beginning, I believe we have a Dropbox available for um, participants and we're going to have some sample um resources in there and, and other um, documentation, including some ICE directives and USCIS memorandum. But just wanted to highlight a sample letter that um, Julie and another one of our colleagues, Emily Leung, drafted um, in, in sort of being helpful in when making U visa certification requests of local law enforcement, describing what the standard is in the U visa process and what certification means and what their role in certifying is in the larger U visa process. And then um, also the two email addresses for the Vermont Service Center and the Nebraska Service Center. Um, they, they're generally responsive. It's been my experience recently. It takes a while, but you do eventually get a response. And, and there is Julia and my information. We are we are available. Um, I'm happy always to to field questions and, and answer them as I can. 
And I would encourage people to include, you know, questions. I know that there is a great, there, there are two great questions that have been asked thus far, but I'm going to throw one of the questions out to you, Jen, to get your thoughts. Maybe we can sort of brainstorm here. Um, and I'll tell you what, what, what my initial thoughts were, but I'd love to run them by, by you. Um, so this was a question, um, can a victim of domestic violence who filed a temporary restraining order at a police department uh, at, at a police department recommendation and was later extended apply for a U visa, the police department is willing to sign the, the U certificate, no criminal case here. So, you know, I think it, this is an interesting question. So one is, um, you know, assuming that the conduct was reported to the law enforcement agency at some stage, um, then absolutely they can certify. Separately, the, the judge, if they, uh, you know, had information to detect a certifying crime in the context of the restraining order, could certify. I guess the question is, if you went in and just applied for the restraining order, uh, is that sufficient in terms of the detection of the crime? And it, my instinct is, um, it might be like if they're saying it is, you know, in the cert, but would you get any pushback if there's no police report or, you know, so I don't know what you think, Jen. Well, I, I mean, I think to a certain extent, this is a little bit uncharted territory, I think, within legal services, but I, I, I don't have a good sense statewide of, of how this is working. Um, I know in our office, we are thinking about pursuing um, a U visa in this context and, and seeking certification from the judge. Um, and we're, we're, you know, going to point to the uh, plaintiff or the client's affidavit in support of the 209A, which described criminal, um, uh, you know, the criminal history. And then also the, um, that we obtained the transcript of the hearing where she testifies about harm and about crimes that were committed. Um, and I mean, in our case, the defendant did appear and did not contest. So that's somewhat helpful. And, and obviously, I think this is a case by case basis. But um, I think it, from my personal experience, it's uh, yet to be seen how USCIS will respond to to this sort of evidence. But that that's going to be our approach. Yeah. And I could add, you know, the other way to think about this case, if there hadn't been an underlying report and the the police department is willing to certify would be just to go ahead and make and make that report, have the survivor go ahead and do that. So then you really have both and you're not concerned about it. So that'd be kind of an alternative option. Um, great. So I know, I'm sure you have burning questions, so feel free to, to include them in the Q&A here. And also know, I think our contact information was a part of the final slide too. And so if you have other questions, you're also, we're happy to be a resource um, moving forward as well. We answered all the questions. <laughs> well, I'm not seeing any any questions. I encourage you. I don't know, Jen, if you have ah, here's one. Okay. Um, if okay, is there a detriment if you don't file the waiver while filing the U visa? Maybe I'll take this and Jen, you can jump in. Um mm. You know, I think generally the benefit of including it all up front is that the application um, theoretically takes less time because if they aren't requesting the waiver at a later stage, you're not receiving a request for evidence and having to respond. Um, what I've heard about the, the concern about not submitting the waiver up front generally is 
if you didn't sufficiently um, flag the inadmissibility issue, um, but it was there and a waiver was needed, there is a risk that USCIS might miss it and not request the waiver. And then you don't get that waiver that um, waiver in place. And at the adjustment stage, you have issues because it wasn't sufficiently addressed. So I think that is a risk. Um, Jen, what do you think? No, I, I agree. I mean, I think, again, you know, you you want to look at it as an opportunity to be as inclusive as possible and, and just really try to kind of own all the things up front and make sure you're getting that waiver. The only time I haven't included the waiver is if I, it's really time sensitive and we are trying to preserve some age outs. I will just try and get the initial uh, underlying visa petition filed. Um, and then file the 192 later once we have receipt notices and things like that. But no, I think, I think, um, and you know, the other thing to just sort of mention in a sort of related way is that even if the 192 is approved and, and grounds are waived, they may come up again in the context of the 485 adjustment and, and just, you know, I, I don't think it's appropriate or proper for USCIS to raise issues that were previously raised and waived, but just be prepared that those inadmissibility issues may arise again in the adjustment period. Great question. And just just to quickly note, um, the they should USCIS should be indicating what grounds specifically were were waived in um, the approval notices. So you always want to check that to make sure that, that those grounds that you requested were were actually waived because they will re reference that. Um, look back at that in the adjustment period. And another question, because cases are taking 30 years to process, are legal services providers changing how they work with U visas? How do you deal with that backlog in your personal caseload for your organization? Jen, do you want to take Yeah, that one? so this is something our group was just recently discussing. Um, you know, for my personal, our personal practice um, has been to try to really be somewhat more selective in which cases we're deciding to take on. And so we've prioritized cases where the petitioner is in removal proceeding or has an outstanding removal order over those cases where somebody may have overstayed a visa um, or entered without detection and, and have never had any contact with uh, immigration enforcement or USCIS. Um, and, and that also just speaks to a larger demand for our services. You know, we have a lot of SIDGE cases as well. So um, you know, there's, I always just feel like there's no feel good way to do this, right? It's just very hard because you're always going to have those compelling cases. Um, but for our office, that that is one way to sort of prioritize and compartmentalize how we're doing these cases and, and just providing a lot of advice to people about their eligibility for U visa and encouraging them to um, either seek other legal services or private counsel and just you know, see it as an investment, a long-term investment in filing this for this U visa relief um, that may result in a bona fide determination in five to seven years or however long it's going to take. Yeah, and I will mention they, there there have been some early discussions about what this means for representation. Are you taking a case and continuing for the full 30 years with, I guess, some providers outside of our jurisdiction talking about you know filing the initial application um, and then withdrawing, um, but there are considerable risks it seems of that strategy. And so, um, you know, I think that this is an area of practice because the numbers are changing so rapidly. Where you want to continue to engage and and learn about best practices. The other piece that I'll just mention is it emphasizes the need to really 
maintain close contact with clients to make sure that people understand. I think moving back to trauma-informed practices, understand the status of the application, making sure that you're checking in with them at least annually um, as the application is pending so that you're not losing contact when that application is ultimately approved. Hey. I'm having trouble getting a response from the Suffolk District Attorney's Office for a U visa certification request that has been pending longer than nine, a 90-day period. Any advice on how to get a response? Um, so I would say on this one, um, we had recently met with their office. So if you... Um, if I'll include my email in the uh, in the chat, but feel free to reach out to me. Um, there may be a contact there that's receiving those requests if they're taking longer than 90 days. Um, apart from that, I would encourage you to re-engage with their office and remind them of the 90-day time frame. There is are some ways to engage in enforcement throughout through the Superior Court, so that's also an option um, to explore as well. But happy, um, I can put my information in the chat too if you have questions about that contact. I just said, Julie. Oh, perfect. Great. Karen's all over it. And it looks like that may be our questions. We just want to thank you um, for engaging and sharing two hours of your time with us and also to invite you to, to contact us with questions. Um, or uh, for, for those of you who are in legal services providers, there is a working group that works on these issues. So you can always email um, me, Jen, or Emily Lung, um, and maybe Karen can pop that in the, in the chat as well if you're interested in joining the working group. Thank you, everyone. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. Enjoy the weather. Yes.